0: Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR, from emdr approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here.
1: To notice that an EMDR podcast. We're here with another interview. I'm so excited today. We have a very unique dynamic, and we're going to kind of hear from the perspective of both the therapist and the human experiencing the therapy. So, I want to introduce you guys today to Deborah Korn um, and Michael, who have come together to write a book with beautiful integration of both of those perspectives the education, the story, the art, um, all of it kind of coming together to share about an experience as well as educate. So thank you guys for coming. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Um, you you for being here.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Yeah, great to be here. For those that are listening um, without video, we've got our Zoom screen set up and um, Michael and Deborah are in different places, but we're all connected through Zoom in kind of a group recording. And if you're interested in seeing this in video, you can go to our YouTube page and get to see their faces and actually see the interactions here that are being recorded. So you can find it at Think Beyond on YouTube.
0: Will you guys start
1: for us and just, um, Deborah, I'll have you start of just kind of giving an introduction of who you are personally and professionally, and then, Michael, you can do the same, and then we'll start to explore the relationship between the two and how it came about that you would work together.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I maintain a private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just up the road from Harvard. Uh, and I'm also an adjunct training faculty member at Bessel van der Kolk's Trauma Research Foundation in Boston. And uh, I was trained by Francine Shapiro in 1991 and 1992, when I was the director of a women's inpatient trauma and dissociation program. And uh, I've been on the faculty of the EMDR Institute for the past 28, maybe 29 years now. Um, wow. I've authored uh, or co-authored a bunch of articles and chapters focused on EMDR therapy, including comprehensive reviews of um, EMDR applications with complex PTSD. That's been a a focus of mine over the years. Uh, I'm an MGA-approved consultant, uh, and I'm on the editorial board of the Journal of EMDR Practice and Research. And uh, what else? And I recently spent two years on the international... EMDR Council of Scholars, um, which is an effort related to the future of the EMDR project. Um, And I guess when I'm not hard at work, uh, you are likely to find me biking or hiking or singing or listening to live music and kicking up my heels. Um, And I guess last but not least, I'm a mom. I'm married and I'm a mom and my son just graduated from high school and is heading off to London for college next oh year. Oh my
0: gosh. So we're wow. anticipating
3: that big change in our family.
0: Yes.
1: Wow. You know, when we you and I met, gosh, it's been probably a month ago when we did our first like call to connect and talk about the podcast. Um, And you would kind of run through those same credentials with me. And I remember just thinking like, holy cow, Like she has done so much (laughs) and is still doing so much. Um, Just really impressive, but also exciting background that you have in so many points of connection and experience and wisdom in the field. So I'm excited to get into more about what is it that's your interest in the work of EMDR mm-hmm. and trauma healing today? Mm-hmm. But before we do that, Michael, I'd love for you to share us with us a little bit about who you are and why is EMDR even important to you?
2: So I'm a much simpler and shorter story <laughs> than Debbie. <laughs> um, I spent about 40 years in the communications, advertising, branding bi- industry or business. Um, I'm also... Um, which is why we're here uh, trauma survivor who is actively engaged in my own process of recovery. So I was um, part of my history is child um, uh, development or, or childhood trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and emotional abuse and neglect. Um, I have a communication and branding firm called Michael Baldwin Inc. Um, which offers branding and communication coaching to my clients and, um, and uh, I also spent about three and a half years at the William Esper Studio in New York studying professional acting,
4: which oh, might surprise wow. everyone.
2: Um, I went to college in Beloit College in Wisconsin, and I live in New York, and I'm single, so I have no oh I have goodness. no children. I'm, I'm sending you off to college, and and I'm just actually on vacation this week with my brother, who's right over there, um, and we're in <laughs> we're in Greensboro, Vermont.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. So. Two completely different sides of the coin that we're getting to kind of demonstrate here on the podcast, which just totally personally, I'm so excited about because we do a lot with one podcast. I'll notice that we're just talking to two clinicians about therapy from the clinical perspective. And then we switch over to another podcast and we're trying to talk to clients and regarding just the human experience of like our own human experiences but to see it all kind of come together and really in the book that you guys have written to see it so beautifully meld together, how did you guys come to know each other and and find this work as something you wanted to do?
3: Yeah. Michael, so why not, maybe start?
1: you'll start. Yeah.
3: Okay.
2: So I had started, um, let's see, maybe I'll give you one little bit of history. So over 22 years, I had seen eight different therapists, none of which, none of whom ever mentioned the word trauma to me. And none of them were EMDR therapists. So I um, met Dr. Jeffrey Magnavita, who was my therapist. So just to be very clear, Debbie was not my therapist. Debbie is my co-author. She's not my therapist. Um, and so this, the genesis of the book started about six months into my work with Dr. Magnavita as I started to understand concepts about trauma and concepts about EMDR as I understood them. And being a visual thinker, I started um, creating... Um, we now refer to as billboards in the book where there's an image on the right and there's very minimal text on the left. And I as I understood things about, um, for example, how trauma is frozen in that your nervous system, it stays perfectly preserved there. So I had this idea of an image of a 35 million year old flower trapped in amber and talking about how um, just like that, images get frozen and they stay perfectly preserved. So I showed that About six of these with Dr. Magnavita. And um, uh, he said, you know, this could be a book. And all I had to do at that point was find an EMBR therapist who was willing to write a book with someone they'd never met before in their life. And (laughs) one of the people, (laughs) small task. And one of the people that Dr. Magnavita, well, the one person he he recommended or suggested I I reach out to was Debbie. And that's who ended up um, being my co author. Um, Wow. And in terms of thinking about the book uh, or creating a book, um, because I was so completely ignorant about trauma, DR had completely um, uh, incorrect associations or understanding of both. Um, I thought I, maybe I could create a book um, sharing my story to help other people um, be comfortable talking about their stories, starting with mm-hmm. you know talking about them to themselves. Um, One little um, caveat about the title. So we all know what EMBR stands for, I'm going to guess in this audience, but um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing was something most lay people are never going to remember. So I wanted to give them four words that retained the same acronym Mm. that were in context that they could remember. So every memory deserves respect was my way of doing that. So it's a a memory-based therapy. So it's funny, the, the minute the publisher saw, heard that title, they said there was no discussion. That was the title.
4: <laughs> oh my um, gosh.
2: So also, I had an idea that men in particular um, uh, might, it might help them understand that trauma might also be at the root of many of their symptoms and behavior patterns, because I think men often need more permission or encouragement yes. to share their vulnerability and, mm-hmm. and, and to seek help.
3: Right. So yeah.
2: Debbie, I, Debbie, you and take it from there.
3: Well, I just wanted to add something with regard to the title of the book and the cover of the book. I just thought I'd say Mm -hmm. something there, too. Um, I'm going
1: to I'm going to show this ah, for those that are seeing it. Yes. The cover. Thank you. Yeah. So
3: so many trauma survivors tell us um, that they themselves or others in their lives are quick to dismiss the relevance or the impact Mm. or the importance of certain experiences. Right. They're often told you to just put things in the past or to pull pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah. And the message here with our title is that our experiences, no matter how big or small, can stay with us and haunt us. And that trauma is both objective and subjective, right? What is traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for the next. And the, the image of the Russian nesting dolls on the cover mm. um, it represents both the memories that we carry with all of their their many components right the feelings the thoughts the sensations the images that are part of memory and the idea that we all have many parts of self each associated with the experiences or traumas in our lives so just wanted to throw that in but to to pick up the story from where, where Michael left off in terms of how we came together. Um, Michael's story and his idea for this book were so compelling Mm -hmm. (laughs) to me that I just absolutely couldn't resist, right? I immediately got really excited about creating an EMDR book, unlike anything that I thought had ever come before. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. one that my clients would actually read One that I could share with my parents who have never really understood what I do for a living and what EMDR is. Um, You know, one that I could share with my primary care doctor or my chiropractor who've asked me about trauma over the years. And I just imagined it to be a truly accessible, reader-friendly, user-friendly book. um, And one that would answer the kinds of questions that people new to therapy tend to ask or they don't ask, right? Mm -hmm. The kinds of fears, the kinds of questions that people have about trauma itself, about symptoms, about the recovery process. And I wanted it to be, or we wanted it to be a book um, for those who self-identify as trauma survivors and also for those people who can't quite figure out you know, why they're depressed or anxious or unable to keep a job or maintain relationships. And we wanted it to be for EMDR therapists and non-EMDR therapists and for other caregivers as well, like physicians or lawyers or probation officers or educators. And for me, writing a book uh, like this was a way to combine my commitment to mental health advocacy and social justice um, with my love for trauma-informed clinical work, for teaching, for EMDR therapy.
1: Yeah, the, the versatility of what this material, how it can be digested and utilized, I think is one of the most powerful pieces of it is, as I was you know, going through it myself, for the therapists themselves, it's a way to, like, to learn these concepts in what feels like a digestible format. Um, Michael, you were saying you'd been to multiple clinicians before who never mentioned trauma. And I think we are in a movement of it becoming much more recognized. But the reality is there's still so many clinicians out there who haven't yet been exposed to what is trauma and how do we think of it more, um, yeah, more generally, rather than trauma can only be these certain things. The other piece is it's, it's so, um, the way it incorporates the art aspects of it, Michael, as you were talking about saying like, oh, I'd have this concept and then I'd see this image. I'm just picturing your your brain, this really like holistic processing center of saying like, not only am I coming up with these left hemisphere, Concept. Someone is telling me something very like left hemisphere conceptual, but then I'm getting like a feeling and an experience out of it and it's coming up in the form of an image. And I think when we're talking about exposing, whether it's therapists or clients um, or just any humans to information like this, we have to tap into that. Holistic way of experiencing it because it's too intense. It's too much to all be conceptual, didactic, you know, information based.
3: Exactly right. We want to be we want to be going back and forth between left brain and right brain, right? We want to use yeah. language to convey ideas and to reach people, and we also want to use imagery and imagination and all of that. And um, you know, when Michael was very young. He had tremendous difficulties with reading. He had reading tutors, right, Good Michael? Read. Right, Good and read. so many of our clients, my clients, struggle to read because they can't concentrate. They get triggered. They, um, you know, it's it's just too overwhelming. And that was another reason why I was so excited about being able to go in this direction where we were bringing in photographs and images for people. Um, and several of my clients have said they really see the book as two books in one, right? Mm-hmm. It's a picture book with a message, with information, and it's a text. And uh, I've actually sat with some clients and just looked through the, the billboards, the photographs mm-hmm. and the words, and we've just had major discussions about a couple billboards at a time. And then we've gone back and we've done a little bit more of the book and just talked about the billboards.
1: Yeah. Michael, I'm curious for your experience, I'm just imagining you've had to have done such growth leading up to the point of writing this book and like healing in your own journey, but what did actually putting it together and writing, I just wouldn't imagine that would be a whole nother healing journey of like expressing myself and putting it in words and then sharing it with the world.
2: Well, I'll tell you one of the interesting parts um... Was when, for Debbie's benefit, um, having to kind of write my story for her, and then and then Debbie interviewed me as if I was a client of hers, which is also a fascinating experience. One of the things that was really interesting to me is when that having to describe my previous self and all of the all of the um, uh, energy that was dedicated and devoted to this grandiosity strategy to you know kind of protect me against this you know, belief that I was worthless. And and
4: mm-hmm.
2: when I had to detail all these things um, for Debbie, it's just, I, I, the more I did it, the more exhausted it became and more. And the more foreign that person came, it was to me because I looked at that previous version of me um, and it's so different than today. Um, but in answer to your question, I would say, um, it's funny, the the writing process seems to clarify and organize.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. And uh, and then the other great part is when you have a great co-author and you have a great publisher and editors, you know that that is another whole nother layer of organizing and simplifying um, mm-hmm. your story and your thinking. Um, we, and we had a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I, I'm thinking, Debbie, about what you're saying about that. It's really that right, left, back and forth when we're like working with clients and processing trauma, but that experience of even in your journey of writing the book and like coming into therapy and feeling the feelings and then how do I articulate them how do I put them into story in a text which purpose is to highlight that everyone does have worth and value and that their trauma doesn't strip them of that and so I'm just thinking my brain can't help but to conceptualize the therapeutic journey of like We're coming into this felt experience. And then the process of writing the book is the articulation and the left hemisphere integration of how do I come to make sense of what my experience really means?
3: Yes. And, you know, um, when Michael and I embarked on this project, he had really um, reached a place of being quite healthy, you know, really quite recovered. Um, And yet, there was so much more that we were able to do together in reflecting on the journey, reflecting on the transformation. Like Michael would describe things to me or tell things to me. And, you know, I would then, um, uh, you know, share my commentary or my reflections on it. And Michael would have new insights, additional, like Michael, Mm -hmm. you remember when we talked about that time, when you, lo- you lost your job and you went into yes. a, a frozen state and yes. it had never occurred to you before that that frozen state your inability to move forward in your life was related to the, f- the freeze that you had experienced over and over again yes. in traumatic yeah. abusive situations in childhood yeah. And it was just a huge insight and, you know, Michael had new insights about dissociation and how dissociation had served him over the course of time. Um, And, you know, and then I was able to say to Mike, well, what's it like, what is it like to realize that now? So we'd, he'd have a new experience, just like people have in therapy, new experiences at a, at a full body, full emotional level. And then I'd ask them to reflect on it. Well, what's it like, what are you thinking about it now? And. So we were right. kind of replicating, as co-authors, some of that back and forth process, um, you know, of uh, of experiencing and reflecting, experiencing and reflecting. That's uh, that. But I, think, you know, I think the dividend of that
2: process that I credit to Debbie is that uh, in my writing, there, we, we, there, in many, many areas, there'd be a lot more uh, depth and granularity and insight that now is in the book that wasn't maybe wouldn't have been there. It would not have been there. Otherwise that Mm -hmm. came out of what she's just got through describing.
1: Yeah. Oh, Debbie, this is a a topic that you and I have uh, shared an interest in to me. This highlights, this showcases the relational dynamic. We say like, okay, there's a therapy relationship and we've got these like this flow and these guidelines that really make it safe, but this is a, a therapy relationship but healing is still happening That's right. this is a like a safe attuned and you know both are curious and supportive of each other and in this process of co-authoring a book continued trauma healing is happening And that is like, I think material like your book is really setting up, how do we equip humans just all over to say, you don't have to be a therapist to engage in this healing relationship with other people or to experience it yourself. It really comes through that process you're saying of like experiencing and reflecting and the safety and like
0: connection of a relationship.
2: So I'll give you another example. We were talking, this has happened often. (laughs) And Debbie say, what did you just say? What did you just say? Wait a minute. Say that again. I remember when I was telling her that, um, you know, I was at one point I was going to private school and having to take four buses from uh, Piedmont, California to San Francisco at age nine by myself going to private school in San Francisco. And it was, you know, horrible and lonely and scary. And I would do it for three years. And so for me, when I would go to the um, San Francisco bus terminal, which also is a horrible, scary place,
4: Hmm. and I would get
2: a copy of Richie Rich, Mm. this comic book that I would just completely dissociate into, Mm -hmm. you know, this cartoon oversized wealth security, um, uh, you know, uh, luxury, you know, uh, nothing to worry about. And she said, what did you say? She said, oh my God, you have to put that, you have to include that, Michael. That's, that's exactly what you were doing as a child to escape this, your, your, the reality of your situation. So that kind of thing happened often.
1: And then how that, Oh my gosh. Yeah. How that strategy of dissociation with Uh, the story around wealth and like getting lost in that, how does that translate into an adult strategy that says it's what helps me survive as a young child. And I, it was so necessary. I had that escape. Maybe I could replicate that in my adult life. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Exactly. 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 I did.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm I'd love to hear from each of your perspectives. What is like, I, I, we hear that the importance of understanding trauma in the therapy dynamic is critical. Like no question or doubt about that. How do we really get into presenting that? And I think you know, in the book does a, a great job of that. But I'd be curious to, to be from you to hear how are you bringing this into your sessions and really starting to highlight that with your clients, if maybe they haven't ever had the story of trauma before, they haven't written that story about their own experiences, they felt it. But as you mentioned earlier, the world around them has told them it's not that big of a deal. Pull up your bootstrap, keep moving. What's your approach in? And then, Michael, what what kind of input do you have from the client perspective on that? Yeah. Well,
3: you know, in the book, we uh, talk about trauma as a part of life, right? We define Mm -hmm. trauma quite broadly, very purposefully. Um, You know, we kind of define it as any experience that feels overwhelming, that triggers strong negative emotions like shame or terror um, and uh, something that involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. And I talk to my clients in my sessions, we talk in the book about um, when we when we talk about t- trauma, we may be talking about situations where something happened to you, right? Emotional, physical, sexual abuse, traumatic losses, uh, witnessing or experiencing violence, natural disasters, combat, uh, medical trauma, or, or, and, or, uh, we might be talking about situations where things were supposed to happen, but mm-hmm. didn't, didn't, right? Yeah. Situations where you were not properly protected, listened to, cared for, uh, valued experiences of, you know, experiences we would describe as neglect or deprivation or abandonment or experiences of alienation. Um, yeah. And, you know, we talk about big T shock traumas and the cumulative effects of small T traumas, uh, mm-hmm. criticism or betrayal, experiences involving humiliation or failure or aloneness subtle bullying, subtle microaggressions, as well as blatant discrimination, hostility, racism, right? Examples in adulthood, like a divorce or losing a job. I, I always give my clients lots of examples mm-hmm. and sure enough, they wind up recognizing themselves in one of those, you know, a difficult move, a discovery of a partner's affair in adulthood, in childhood, feeling ignored. Uh, feeling different, feeling unable to measure up uh, or powerless to control the craziness or the chaos in your family. Um, And I always explain to people that the greater the number of adverse experiences that someone is exposed to, the greater the potential for psychological, for for a psychological and physical toll. Um, But most importantly, I really emphasize that it's both about what happened um, and how you experienced what happened and what didn't happen, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I ask specifically in words about what didn't happen by asking, you know, can you think of times where you felt profoundly alone, when you um, felt like you didn't belong anywhere, where there was you were overwhelmed or frightened, and there was no one to turn to? Were there times where? your parent or the person who is supposed to be caring for you rather than being comforting was frightening or frightened themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So lots of examples really kind of spelling out the breadth of what comes under that umbrella of trauma.
1: When you describe it in that way with all of those examples, it's I can't think of a human who hasn't right. experienced trauma, right? Like that right. is the human experience is riddled with it. That's part yes. of like yes. living um, the, the piece that, that I like to highlight It's like all of that in the absence of a secure attuned relationship, exactly. that's when we get the, the strategies and the symptoms that have to manifest as a way right. to deal with it. Um, and I right. think that's, such a missing piece yeah. is, you know, and people even being able to understand like trauma, we all treat trauma as therapists. We may not know it, but we all treat it, but it's really looking at like the symptoms and their severity are dependent on how much attunement and security were they offered in the difficulties of life.
3: Exactly. And, um, you know, I think, most people recover from trauma. The statistics tell us that most people do not develop PTSD, but the folks that wind up symptomatic, dealing with anxiety or depression or PTSD or dissociation um, are the folks that have that element in their story. Mm -hmm. That they had no one to help them find their way to process with, to help them regulate or recover. Um, yeah. And that's when, as you said, people start turning to these defensive strategies or these, um, you know, attempts to cope that may yeah. have served them very, very well back then. That may have been part of their resilience back then, yes. but is you know holding them back to some degree, limiting their aliveness in their lives today.
1: I think that's such the power of even being able to define trauma in the way you're describing is that experience alone to me in therapy is attunement. Sometimes it's the first moment of attunement that says what you went through and what your body experienced in that moment, I want to see you and validate you and attune to, like how much that was for you, where the the lack of attunement has led them to say like, no, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal because that's the messaging they've been sent. So material, like what you guys have written to me is like this, like on a platter offering, here's where we can come in and even start attunement. And that's the first step in being able to heal trauma is yes. we have to get connected in what that experience was like.
3: Yes. Michael, I was thinking um, your story of your step grandfather yes. is really relevant to what we're talking about, right?
2: Yep. Yeah. So he was, um, our grandmother remarried and, uh, a very successful man. Um, and one of the places that homes they had was in Naples, Florida. And there's a picture in the book, um, of my step-grandfather, uh, and myself in the water and the operative part of the picture of me is that he's holding my hand. So he's, you know, otherwise I'm sure I would have been, I probably never would have gone in. I'm like about two, two feet tall. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't even know why he took such an interest in us. I mean, but all my brother and my two sisters, I think we all have fond memories of him, even though we were not his, you know, biological children, grandchildren, but he really, really took an interest in us. And, and, and I have a couple of th- stories that I'll never forget that he, you know, in particular focused on me and my sort of welfare and, I think even recognizing that I might be um, insecure or worried or scared about something
4: mm-hmm.
2: and, and trying to, to, you know, um, make it less scary or easier for me, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, and this man was in his fifties wow. and from another generation.
3: Yeah. And this is when nobody else in Michael's life was paying attention. No, no one in his immediate family was paying attention. You know, it was a, this, There's a lot of privilege in Michael's family, but there he was an underprivileged kid in terms of Mm -hmm. attention and care and uh, you know relational support. Truly,
1: yeah. Michael, how did that then, or yeah, how did that play a role then in your therapy process? Of that's and becomes an internalized construct of in the smallest moment. I did have attunement or I was of interest in what I did have worth and value in someone's mind and heart. How did that show up in the therapy journey after that?
2: I think for me, um, the, the most important part about it was feeling that attunement with, um, the therapist with Dr. Magvita.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
2: uh, I don't know if, uh, well, this wouldn't have, wouldn't have come up already, but, um, there were many times early on when a lot of the sessions had to do with neglect and um, you know, pre verbal, you know, early, early on. And and I I really was so completely out of touch and completely unaware of the depth of the, I I was writing about it recently, what felt like these tankers of, of just flowing, you know, grief and, and longing. And unhappiness and and being alone and scared and would just flow out of me. So a lot of times the the sessions themselves would be very convulsive and and sobbing, you know, really, I mean, really convulsive. And you know, more than once he would say, "Take my hand." He would just mm-hmm. take my hand because he would see someone in such distress, and uh, he said, "You need to hold on. Just take hold on to my hand, you know, while this is going on." Um, and that happened many times, and I think that, to me, is probably in my relationship with that, with Doctor Magrini, is probably the most um, symbolic rep- representation of what attunement means, where mm-hmm. you're recognizing the distress in the patient to the extent where you know he would he would do that.
1: Oh. How all I see when you say that is my image of your grandfather holding your hand exactly. in the water
3: exactly. Right. When Michael showed me that photo um, it brought, I I became tearful um, because, you know, for all that Michael has been through in his life and with all of the ways in which he has felt handicapped uh, interpersonally and in intimate relationships because of the issues related to trauma, you know, there's this part of Michael that, you know, really yearns to connect and really yearns to trust people and has capacity to trust people. And, you know, I, I thank God for your step grandpa and, um, and for some of the teachers you had. Yes. um, Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to comment. I just want to, pause for a moment to say something about the importance of the therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. in this work that we're doing for all the therapists out there to listening. Um, you know, I, I really want to invite therapists to bring their whole selves, their hearts and their emotions to the therapeutic relationship to psychotherapy, right? I've discovered that many therapists coming out of basic training in EMDR, um, I hear get this message to kind of stay out of the way and let the let the client's brain do the work. And um, sometimes I think people take that in to mean that means that they should somehow be detached or neutral yeah. or totally silent. And from my perspective, this really misses the mark and could even be harmful to clients.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And you know, our clients really need to feel, as Michael's describing, really need to feel accompanied and seen, and validated, and they need to know that we're not just offering them words or perfunctory explanations, right? They need to know that they're having an impact on us, yeah. and this in turn gives them a sense of agency, right? I exist, I matter, I can influence others, um, and you know, it's possible to be fully engaged with our clients while still allowing their brain to lead the way in, in yeah. processing work. Um, but I, I do think that therapists need to be trained kind of how to self-regulate themselves, Mm -hmm. how to effectively use their nonverbal, uh, communication, their voices, their tone, their prosody, right? They, they need to learn when and how to share their own emotional responses in their work with clients and when and how to use, um, their own emotional responses as interweaves in EMDR, yeah. as you know, interventions in the work,
4: yeah.
3: right? Because emotion shared, um, shared grief or excitement or joy conveys needed information to clients, mm-hmm. right? Like, again, you're important. You're not alone. So, what we're doing in EMDR therapy and any good trauma informed therapy is we're activating the old experiences. And then we're trying to give the client new perspective, new information, a new experience in the moment, which is information that yeah. they can integrate in with the old and transform the old.
1: Yeah, I'm memory reconsolidation, yes, right? Exactly. Like that is, exactly. oh, I love it. And this topic gets me so jazzed. I just yeah. it feels like it's just the most important piece that we can't emphasize enough. Michael, your story that you shared is like the most perfect picture of that, of you have this really old resource back from step-grandfather when you're little, little, and that happens, but it was a small enough memory network that many other experiences happening after that, that maybe contradicted what that moment felt like at the time. And then you have this therapist in real time, present moment, sees your pain, sees your suffering and says, take my hand. Like I'm here with you and I want to connect with you in that. If it wasn't for that invitation and your, your therapist then being their real authentic human self that says, I want to comfort this person. Like I desire to like comfort and regulate with them and feel connected to them. Not only does it one, reconnect you back to a really old template that says like, Maybe there are, you know, some people that do see me and see my hurting and want to connect with me, but then it continues to build on it. You have yet again, now another new experience of that. So powerful. And I think Debbie, you were mentioning like as therapists, there is like this hesitancy or reservation around it of what do we learn in school? Like, oh, no physical touch. Don't hug your clients. Don't like these types of messages that are saying like, oh, but that was the most powerful thing that you are highlighting out of all of your therapy was the moment he offered you
2: a yeah. hand.
1: Yes. And that.
2: Yes. Yes. Many times.
1: Yes. And I think for clients that might be listening to the episode to say, if that's a desire of yours to feel nurtured and comforted from your therapist, there is nothing wrong with you. No. So many clients feel that there's this shame that, man, if, if I'm in that moment and just wish my therapist would hug me, or I just, I look forward to seeing them because when I'm in their office, I feel so important and special. And I miss them when they go on vacation. Like it doesn't mean that we're broken or wrong, or it's inappropriate. It just means it's a real human relationship and there, you know therapy gets to put nice guidelines, boundaries around it to make it as effective as possible and safe as possible, but we can still be humans in it. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Debbie. Thank you. <laughs> for yeah. I, you know, that.
3: it makes me think about, um, you know, we're, we're always trying to decrease our clients' symptoms and distress, but simultaneously we're trying to to increase their access to resources, right? To, mm-hmm. to hope and courage and self-compassion and Confidence and trust and self regulation and play and decreasing the negative, you know, dumping off those old memories, right? Desensitizing those old memories does not automatically translate to increasing the positive in people's lives or the positives that they hold within. And I think, you know, every opportunity we have to, um, to privilege the positive, to grab something that we see and, you know, a resilient, a sign of resilience or, you know, resilience in their everyday life or, or a moment between us where, you know, there's so many moments I have with my clients where I'm just awed by their courage or their wisdom, right? And to, to grab those and make sure that's getting incorporated into what we're processing, right? That's, that that those moments become corrective experiences that get threaded into the learning, the the newness.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with EMDR language, like that's the resourcing is so much more robust than here's some scripted standardized resources with everyone. Resourcing could just be the moment-to-moment interaction that we say like, would you like a drink of water or some hot tea? Like it could be the tiniest passive moment between us. It could be the eye contact we make. And you see a a look of empathy and care um, through an expression with no words. Like all of those are moments of resourcing. We are always in resourcing if we're doing therapy. Always. (laughs) Yes.
3: Yes. We are on the same page, Jen.
1: (laughs) Yes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I was, I was just going to say, um, I also um, I often install, as strange as this may sound, my face, my office, the sound of my voice with people with EMDR. When we're doing resourcing work, I ask clients, what is it about this office or what is it about my voice or the way I look at you
4: mm-hmm.
3: that helps you relax, that helps you feel safe, that helps you know that, you know, I care about you. And I I often hear such interesting things, things that I wouldn't necessarily expect. Like I, I heard recently a client said to me, it's that moment you come around the corner into the waiting room and Mm -hmm. smile at me. And when I see you smile at me, I know like not up here, but down here in my Mm -hmm. heart, in my true being, I know that you're really happy to see me. Ugh. And I know that I'm going to be okay. Like, I know that I'm going to be able to do this work. And so we grabbed a snapshot of that moment of me coming around the corner and the look on my face and my, you know, saying hello with my eyes. And we installed that. We, we kept processing that uh, as mm. we went.
1: Wow. Yeah. So powerful. And that you sharing that story is bringing up an old story construct of mine that I'm working to separate from, but someone who had said like, never install yourself as a therapist, as a resource, because we're going to encourage dependency, like the, no. the fear around it. And it's just, to me, it can be such powerful resources. So to hear you even say like a look on my face, we yeah. just install and really get detailed about it, how powerful that can be because of what that means to them.
3: Yeah. I I actually think it's quite the opposite, Jen. <laughs> I think I don't think we're we are facilitating dependency. I think we're facilitating growth and a healthy mm-hmm. autonomy because we want our clients to carry us inside and hear our voice, not the voice of their bully or their perpetrator, yeah. right? We want them to see our face, right? That's that's healthy development. A child incorporates the sound of their, you know, their good enough parent you know, Mm -hmm. kind of being nurturing and being kind. So, so many of these folks need, you know, we need to populate their positive memory networks because there's an overabundance of negative critical. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think having a little bit more that they can carry with them, um, I think it facilitates object constancy and object permanence, right? So Mm -hmm. they can go in between sessions and know that, we're still there.
1: Yes. Right. We're not, that, we haven't
3: disappeared because they closed the door and head to their car.
1: Bulby's safe haven and that that attachment pattern of like we have this secure home base, safe right. base, and then we can launch out. And the whole purpose of therapy is for that launch. I can I can go out and navigate the struggles of the world. And I can trust that I come back and maybe just this one person can genuinely care and unconditionally care about me. And as I'm launching, maybe I come into relationship with more people that could be that. We could transfer right. that safe, secure base.
3: right. And if folks have never experienced nurturance, you know, if they've never experienced somebody holding them in heart and mind when they're apart, you know, how can they, how can they nurture them? How can they begin to nurture themselves and have, yeah. they've never had somebody expressing compassion for them in yeah. actions or words. How can they have compassion for themselves? Right. Michael, I yeah. actually, again, remember this is bringing back such memories as we're talking. I remember interviewing Dr. Magnavita your therapist for our book. And, um, I remember him talking about that point in his work with you, where you started to get excited for the first time about taking care of yourself, like really, you know, cooking dinner and really putting effort into cooking well for yourself and, you know, kind of creating your apartment in a way that was, you know, expressive of who you were. And just this transformation that reflected that for the first time, as you had you know, Doctor Magnavita caring for you and expressing compassion for you and believing in you and seeing you—you were you then able to start doing that for yourself.
2: Right. Yep. Yep.
4: Mm-hmm. Also, you guys, you
2: know, from a, from a client perspective, you know, uh, what what has to happen that that attunement is what allows a client to basically, as I I, I I use this expression, I use it in acting school, I use it with other people who are. Contemplating the MBR therapy, you know, you if you're going to jump out of the plane, mm-hmm. meaning you're going to go for it 100% and there's going to be nothing withheld and it's going to be everything out of the hip, you have to feel 100% about that person that you're jumping out of the plane, you know, mm-hmm. in the presence of. You know, you have to feel that there's going to be no judgment, no downside, no risk, qu- everything, everything quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, and And I think that's what the the attunement and attachment and in my case um, I think so much about it. my my pathology was a, an utter lack of attachment to any any anybody mm-hmm. and you know Dr Magdevita was you know he 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 played several roles of a of a parent of a sibling of a grandparent of all these you know all this sort of the the amalgam of any teacher that ever took an interest in me you know all those roles he played for me and that's why. It was uh, always such a relief to, when he would come, he didn't walk in or turn around the corner, he would open the door into the waiting room and he'd say, and I, and I knew, I'd walk in I, and I'd walk in that office, I'd sit down in that chair and shut the door, and I'd say, I'm here, I, I made it, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And, and in, my, in my case, Jen, I drove 110 miles from New York City to Glastonbury, Connecticut to get to him. So I would drive two and a half hours oh. to get to his office and then I'd wait an hour at the Dunkin' Donuts, and then I would see him for three hours, two 90-minute mm-hmm. sessions, and I would drive back. And a lot of times, if there was an accident or rain or snow, the Merritt Parkway was, that'd be a five or six-hour trip back.
0: Wow. And that's, you
1: know, to really show, when you were mentioning this, uh, to come from a place of a lack of attachment to anything, your, your nervous system doesn't even know what it could feel like to have a safe figure to attach to, to be introduced into this relationship that says this person is showing up in a way that's teaching my nervous system for the first time. What does it feel like to start to attach in a a secure way? I can feel connected and attuned and then maybe I feel fear in it and I want to pull back and guard and protect and he's still pursuing me and still consistently there for me. I'd be curious did you experience some of those like ups and downs and like the roller coaster of I've gone from not attaching at all to, can I really attach? Like, can I trust that this is safe when I've been told for my whole life, it's not.
2: I think maybe because I was in such dire straits when I finally got to him. Mm -hmm. um, And the first time I saw him, I was with him for four and a half hours. Um, I think that just, that, Attunement and attachment process took place pretty quickly, and um, I never felt. For example, you an example, one time I was um, uh, going to confirm the time for the following week, and I uh, I said I'll, I'll, I'll email you, and I emailed him later than I thought, maybe a, a half a day later, and he he had filled the time. And I remember feeling in that case, I remember feeling like panic, like I, I can't, I can't go, I can't wait two weeks to go back up there. And then I remember him telling me, because I I think we spoke on the phone, he said, you have to know that no matter what, whether it's a weekend or evening, or I will always find time for you. So don't ever worry that, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to have a slot. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have the ability to come to, to come here. Mm -hmm. And that was the only time um, it was, I guess, because it was, I was so bereft. And so happy to have this person who played all those roles for me.
1: Yeah. Well, and that I'd be yeah, Debbie. You looked like you were going to say something. I was just going to say.
3: You know, I was just going to speak to the the dyadic relationship, the two way street. Like you were at a place having seen many, many, many therapists over twenty two years not getting any relief. You, you know, you and then hitting a bottom before you showed up at Dr. Magnavita's office. I think there was that readiness and that need or that, you know, desperation. Yeah. Yes, you showed up with that, but you also showed up having made a decision, like made a commitment like mm-hmm. to to do this work. And yeah. he met you there. He met you yeah. there with, you know, providing this security seeing you, getting it, reassuring you. Um, And so I think uh, even when people have not had secure relationships over a lifetime, it is possible to arrive there quickly. Um, It doesn't, you know, I think there's a lot of, I think people in our field often believe, oh, you know, this is going to be a long-term case and, you know, it'll be a year before we have a safe enough, or secure enough relationship mm-hmm. to begin looking at trauma work or anything. And I think it just goes to show it really depends. It really is possible to develop that security very quickly. I do a lot of consultations in my practice where I, I um, my consultees might bring in a client of theirs to work with me for a session because they're feeling stuck. And, you know, these are folks that I've never met before. I've heard about them, but I've never met them before. And, you know, within minutes, we drop into a place that feels secure enough to do, you know, work that always amazes me. It, it, Mm -hmm. it amazes me time and time again. So um,
1: that idea of secure enough, it's it, it does take time to establish a secure attachment pattern to someone but we can come secure enough navigate some bumpy waters and that actually will increase a sense of security when we right. go into some of those difficult things Michael, in your story when you're talking about that rupture of he feels a session and now you're kind of in this panic and anxious state of I can't go that long that mm-hmm. is like an anxious attachment response but yeah. what happens yes. is the two of you 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 came together, yeah. You came together in connection of it, and he said, "Hey, in this in these moments of mis misattunement or mismatch, like we can still find each other, and here we are. And I want to you know, I'll still find you, and I'll still accommodate you, and I'm still here." and we'll make it work. And so through that, I would guess the relationship really even like dialed up a little bit more in the sense of security and that this said, like, okay, I got to feel that big wave of activation of, oh no, I might lose this, my security. And then I say, oh, oh, it, I didn't. And that repair piece and that gosh is probably almost more healing than if it had never happened in the first place. Yeah, definitely.
3: Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, those, those moments where things don't go perfectly, or even when there's a real rupture in the therapy, it's such an opportunity. It's a remarkable, you know, I always say to my clients that, you know, every disconnect is followed with the opportunity to reconnect. And in that reconnection, I think you're going to learn something about me, about us, about what's possible in intimate, secure relationships that is really important to know. You've never, maybe never known that before that Mm -hmm. there can be repair or there, you know or someone will come to you, (laughs) you know you don't always have to chase after.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Yes.
1: Okay. We're going to take a a quick break here to share with some of our listeners about things we have going on at Beyond Healing. But then as we come back, I want to kind of reground this back into EMDR specifically from both of your experiences. So we'll be back here in just a moment. Okay. Um, As we get back into kind of our conversation where we were at, I want to come back to the EMDR pieces of this specifically. So We're talking about the relationship and the importance of resourcing is always happening through the therapeutic relationship, but then there's that other piece of trauma work. There's actually the, like, let's go back into the stored experiences and and choose to and intentionally, like, activate your body in that so that held with the resource of our relationship and all of the beauty of EMDR, how we can process through that. I want to connect with each of you on the experience with EMDR and what you would want to share with our listeners in that. So Michael, I'll I'll start with you, but for those that are therapists or clients listening right now, what would you want to share about the experience of EMDR or what felt so important as you're shifting into like, we're about to navigate some of the hardest, most painful experiences um, of my life in a therapy session?
4: So you want to start with me, the the hardest and most difficult that
2: I can remember?
1: Yeah, just anything you'd want to share with um, clients that might be listening or therapists of what was so important to you in that EMDR process.
2: Okay, so first and foremost, uh, for me, having never experienced it before, having seen eight different therapists over 22 years, and none of them were EMDR therapists. The most important thing I would want people to understand is that, for the first time, it w- it was as if, you know, I'm, an image is coming to mind right now of the 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 uh, the tree with the 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 sort of the spike in it, so that the the sap can can come out into the bucket that's hanging off the tree, sort of like you know a direct way to access buried uh, traumatic memories. And the associated, mm-hmm. associated feelings that went with them for me, that was um, an immediate and a, a very stark difference of, for EMBR therapy than any other CBT therapy or talk therapy or intensive dynamic psycho uh, short-term. Uh, let's see, intensive short-term,
4: short-term dynamic psychotherapy, dynamic, dynamic
2: psychotherapy, dynamic psychotherapy <laughs> yes, yeah. any of them. So, so that image of like you know, be it, able to go can go right in and access and connect with those, you know, target memories where the trauma is, is a a part of it. And then all the feelings and emotions that are are tied up with that, just coming out. I mean, just not intellectualizing them, but experiencing them as vivid as they were at the time. That's number one.
1: Okay. I want to just, I want to add to that image. My mind is going to those other approaches that you listed are my felt experience are more like we need to cut this limb off we mm. need to like prune the tree here mm. you know we have to cut this off and mm. what you're describing this is like no the tree itself is like let's let it be let's get into what's really happening inside instead right. of trying to like just manage and tame it let's really go with what's happening from the inside out i love right. that image
3: mm. yeah it's a good so, one
2: too. Thanks. Uh, And then the other one, I think, because if you read the book, there are a couple of um, nightmares that I had for over 40 years that never diminished in intensity, were as terrifying the first time I had them as the last time I had them. And it turned out that they were very specifically related to traumatic memories and traumatic events. Mm
4: -hmm. And
2: in terms of um, scariest things, there were, um, one of, I didn't, wasn't really revealed until almost the very end of the two year period with Dr. Magavita. And I was starting to wonder, maybe this is, it's so bad. I just can't really deal with it. Maybe it's just something I'm just never going to be able to to, to to cope. And it's just too bad. I'll just never know what it is. And then, um, the same nightmare that I had, I had the night before I was going up to Dr. Magavita and it was, it was as if, um, they let me see that last chapter of the nightmare that was never available to me before in 40 years. And and um, what in my dream nightmare all the time for 40 years was this prison it wasn't a prison, it was a doctor's office.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: so what was revealed to me was the actual source of the nightmare and the source wow. and, and the root of the traumatic memory. And and then we finally got to that with Dr. Magda in, in his office and finally re-experiencing that, that traumatic experience. He knew what it was a year ago. I didn't, uh, it had it, for me, I had to wait to get to that point. So yeah. what is my point? I think for me, um, no matter how scary or no matter how much the apprehension and, and the way I describe it is subconsciously, you know, I felt like my subconscious knew everything. It was just a matter of whether or not it wanted to let my conscious mind know or not know mm-hmm. but no matter how bad or how i'll use the word dread sometimes i would drive up have this horrible sense of dread like oh, what's going to happen i don't know if i can handle it when you're in the when i was in the office with him i knew no matter what it was he wasn't going to run out of the office he wasn't going to let me you know d- dysregulate he wasn't going to uh, let me become somehow overwhelmed and and blow up in some way. He was going to be there with me. And that to me is almost the key to everything. And this gets back to the attunement point and my attachment with him. Because you have to have that person, you have to have that 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 assurance, that, that emotional um, conviction that I know that if I'm here in this room with this therapist, that I can do this. And I also know my, I, I, I knew that even though the dread in many cases was so bad, I knew I had to 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 somehow face it. But I knew I could do with him.
1: Hmm. Something that was insurmountable alone became very possible
2: with yeah, him. Well, it was hidden to me for mm-hmm. fifty years. That's how insurmountable it was. Just it was so yeah. horrible that my it was just buried, and there was no way my conscious mind was ever going to go near it because this is just too bad. This is mm-hmm. too much because again because that amplification you know when it gets buried now listen to me, i'm now this debbie kids me like listen what listen to him what's about? as i understand it, is because when it happens the characterization and the understanding and the, the in the noise level is of a child it's not an mm-hmm. adult it's of a child in my case who was being subjected to the experience so it's you know it's off the richter scale for the child when if you look at it as an adult we can see this happen but So that's the level of of volume and that's the the DEF CON level that it sits there buried because the child put the label on it. It was a child sensibility that when it was buried.
4: Right.
1: Yeah. How would you describe what Michael is saying for the therapist perspective? Because I think that client experience of it, every therapist is like, how do we do that? Like, how do we shift from a child? a child's storage of the memory which is filled with fear and confusion and it's all dismantled and move that more into an adaptive adult's perspective that has a, a adaptive understanding of it.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I I always say to folks that are contemplating coming to therapy, um, you don't have to figure things out before you come to therapy. You're going to have a <laughs> partner, you're going to have somebody that's going to Keep you safe. I'm not going to let you drown. You know, um, I'm going to help with the pacing and the decision making and setting the goals. I'm going to be there to accompany you and regulate. So you know, show up and bring your whole hot mess. <laughs> you know, um, and it it's not unusual for people to have a lot of anxieties or fears at the start of treatment that that they're going to be flooded, they're going to be overwhelmed, that they they're gonna start crying and not be able to stop. They're gonna dissociate and not be able to come back into their body and Mm -hmm. get grounded. And really it is the job of the trauma therapist, the EMDR therapist to be the anchor and to be the co-regulator, right? To make sure the client stays within that window of tolerance at all times, like we're tracking, right? Michael uses the word attunement. To me, what attunement is, is moment to moment, tracking my client's body, their emotion, their words, what's going on between them and me, right? Are we connected? Can they feel me with them? I'm watching and tracking all of that. And if they are starting to get flooded in any way, like just a drop over, or they're starting to shut down because it's too much, it's my job to help Get them regulated and back into that window of tolerance. And, um, you know, we as EMDR therapists have many, many tools at our disposal, um, more than ever before, because of all the beautiful models that are out there that are giving us additional interventions that we can use as interweaves to help clients stay regulated and stay in, <clears throat> excuse me stay in a place of dual attention. That's the term we use in EMDR therapy, which basically means that at all times, the client needs to be grounded and present in their adult life, in the therapy office, connected to the therapist as they observe, as they bear witness to their feelings, their thoughts, their Mm -hmm. memories, their impulses, their images. But it's the EMDR therapist job to help the clients, always be always to remember it's old stuff. Just be be an observer, and if you're
2: safe you know, now, you're safe now,
3: right? And if at any moment I have this sense that I'm losing, you know, uh, I'm lo- the, the client is losing that capacity for dual attention, that becomes the top priority. that That's the first priority is to always make sure that your client is in that window and that they're connected and present and tolerating the work because we do not want the work to be traumatic. It's, yeah. I always say to folks, it's, it's not trauma processing and EMDR, it's not about reliving, it's about redoing. It's mm. about processing and redoing, right? You have an opportunity to first bear witness to your own story, to experience and observe your own story. And then you actually get a choice. You get to say, well, what would I have liked to have happened? What did that little kid need to hear that he never heard back then? You know, what do you wanna say today that you could never say back then? If you could, you know, if you could just let it rip and you could say, you know, um, what you wanted to say to your perpetrator or to the person who didn't protect you. And those steps of being able to see it through in a different way is, I think, you know, incredibly reparative. That you know, I want to add just one not... thing: is, is
2: that I think what Debbie's talking about, and you guys mm-hmm. know about, is that, that that moment-to-moment attunement process. I think that's what good parenting is. <laughs> yes, I think that's what, what what good parents do. We didn't mm-hmm. have good parents, and Debbie, Debbie is one of the, one of the many things she's pointed out is. In the case of our mother, you know, I, I had probably six concussions. I kept falling on my head as a kid when I was two and three years old. So she was so completely out of attunement, out of what Debbie mm-hmm. was describing. She said, well, he's falling on his head, so let's put carpeting on his forehead.
4: Mm.
2: Carpeting. That was the carpeting, yeah. Car- you know, industrial carpeting on my forehead. So there's no no clue whatsoever. Why is this happening? And what is this state of yeah. But I think what, what you're describing, what you guys described, is I think that's what good parenting is. Yes, which we did not so have.
1: No, I I love your connection there because that really just highlights the therapy process is a re-parenting right. experience. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Debbie, I mean, your phrase of "It's not about reliving; it's about redoing." That that hit me, Bay. Like that captures it all with EMDR of. And Michael, as you're incorporating this like reparenting piece that comes in, it's like redoing it in real time. You're getting right. the experiences. your body is getting to feel it differently as we recall it and bring it back to our minds. We're not going back to go through it the exact same way it was at the time. Yeah. We're going back to play back through with the new mm-hmm. needs being met, the attunement um, and that tracking that you're describing. As the therapist if we're tracking, it allows us to be responsive to the most subtle cues, so that we can regulate. That um, a lot of people feel this fear around EMDR of like, oh no, like it's going to take this crazy left turn, and they're going to have these huge over reactions, and I can't regulate them. If we're really tracking and attuning and feeling in our body when it's starting to become a lot and too much, we can be responsive to that, and it's not like we won't reach a point where it's damaging and it's too late. Like we can come back and regulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of this is such good material. And I appreciate you guys coming and getting to share the unique perspective of both therapist and client for our listeners. I do want to make sure we take the last little bit of this episode to share with them. Where they can connect with you all, how they can get the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do like genuinely. In my heart feel like every therapist could have this as a desk t- uh, side table read. Um, it could also be just a great offering to like those family members and friends. People have yeah. said like I want to understand it more, but it feels too overwhelming to sit down and try to to explain it all. This is a very reader friendly experience.
2: So let me oh. let me just I want to throw one thing in there just for your audience's benefit, and and that is that since I started this project, I am now up to forty four people who are seeing EMDR therapists that Debbie has recommended. So friends of friends, children of friends, colleagues—forty four people. The latest one is the superintendent in my building in New York, you know, who's Irish and had all kinds of trauma. Didn't even know about trauma. He's read the book. He's now about to connect with the trauma therapist. Um, but in terms of where you can get more information Um the, the website is the same exact title. It's every memory deserves respect.com. And um, there's lots of information. Every event Debbie and I have done is, is pretty much there. And there's all of Debbie's um, resources are listed there. Debbie, you can continue from there.
3: Yeah. You'll, you'll find articles, you'll find essays about EMDR, some written by me, some by others. Um, You'll find articles and information about trauma and trauma-informed care. Um, You'll find links to podcasts and interviews and presentations. And um, we're actually about to start a four-month publicity campaign around the book. So we're going to be doing a lot more talks and a lot more programs like this. So hopefully all of those will be resources for people as well. And um, what else? And you can you can get our book on Amazon and from many other online booksellers and, and in
2: audible. If you'd rather hear it, you would oh, listen no, to it. Right. There's the audible version of the book. Right. Did
1: you guys, are either of you the readers of it on audible? No. Okay. We had
3: beautiful <laughs> readers. We had wonderful, really beautiful, wonderful readers. Beautiful. Now narr- we were blessed yeah. oh, to yes. have uh, narrators that have just beautiful empathy in their voices and yeah, really nice. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Um, well, also,
2: if you if you prefer, if you happen to be Italian or Greek, uh, the book was just published in Greece. Um, and it's oh. about hopefully soon to be published no, was, in, I'm sorry, in, in Italy. Italy. And in soon Italian. to be published in Greece. So we're up to two foreign versions of the book. So hopefully we're going to have many more.
3: Yeah. And, um, and people can send questions our way uh, through through our website which is again, yep. www.everymemorydeservesrespect.com. Kind of okay. Yep. Yeah.
1: Great. And I'll make sure that that's linked in the show notes as well, so that everyone can check that out if you're looking for a quick, easy link and reference to get that material. So mm-hmm. thank you both for joining. I wish you mm. all the best in your publicity tour. And I really hope that we find more opportunities to connect in some way, like the, The field isn't that big. We should hopefully our paths will cross again.
4: Hope so.
2: Thank you for having us, Jen. Thank
3: you so much, Jen. Really lovely to be with
2: you.
1: Yes, take care. Okay. Bye.
0: We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, Check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.